Welcome to the Juniper and Journey podcast with Keziah Ritter and Lindsay Heslop. We're so thrilled that you're here. This is a podcast dedicated to celebrating the strength and stories of women, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful in their own words. We believe in the power of real conversations, honest confessions, and playful nostalgia. You'll get to hear all kinds of perspectives from all kinds of women about all kinds of things. We'll talk about life and motherhood and loss and faith. We'll reminisce about the good old days, first loves, and old flames. This is going to be fun. Things might get a little rowdy, but we can guarantee that it will be meaningful, and we hope each woman's story inspires you towards empathy, compassion, and healing. Okay, let's get started. Today, we are sitting down with the famous Rebecca Barnes. Woo! Yeah. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> but seriously, so excited. Yes. Because basically, let's be honest, we pretty much had to beg you <laughs> to come do this over, over the last several weeks. Mm-hmm. So we're very excited that you're here. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Rebecca is this person that kind of, I don't know, you do this thing where you perfectly embody this balance of humor and wisdom. Like you balance that so well where I just am like, I want to be you when I grow up. And I genuinely mean that. (laughs) I love that about you because you're so fun and relatable. And yet in the same moment, just like wise and and intentional, and I love it. So I'm we're so glad that you're here. So thank you. Well, thank you. That's that's a quite a compliment for someone who just came by it naturally from the fun of a dysfunctional family. You know? <laughs> it's all that the is gift of trauma. Yeah, <laughs> keeps on giving. <laughs> well, well, I love it. Yes. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. A brief intro. Um, I am super old. I just had my birthday yesterday, so it reminded <gasps> me I'm even older now. Happy belated oh birthday! Oh my gosh, happy birthday! <laughs> it was really fun because we were up skiing, and every time they beeped my pass, it played a little song. And Ron was enjoying that a lot more than me. So yeah, <laughs> Ron is my husband. We just started our thirtieth year of marriage, and we have three grown-up daughters. And I am currently retired and just working in the Airbnb business. Hey. Yeah. Love it. And Ron's going to retire in a couple more months. So we're just looking forward to our next kind of low-key chapter. Love it. So good. That's awesome. So three daughters. What were those early days of motherhood like? I'm kind of in those right now. So I want to know, like, those first few years, like, what was that like for you guys? That was good. I The only piece that I really didn't enjoy, well, there were two pieces. I don't enjoy newborns. They're just a constant, <laughs> <laughs> a constant mess. <laughs> um, and they don't do anything yet, you know? They don't even <laughs> smile at you or anything. So what, once they start smiling and <clears throat> having fun, I love babies. I love toddlers. Worked with preschoolers for quite a few years at church, so... That is a fun age, too. And then when they're your own kids, it's even more fun and more challenging. You know, it's everything. I think uh, uh, the intensity of parenting I don't miss. We were watching kids at the ski 
area yesterday and you know how little kids are when they're skiing and they just get so tired and they oh, just right. behave pretty badly and their parents <laughs> were like bribing them with candy and I was like I turned around and I said I don't really I don't really miss that and he was like oh he's like oh no no Lena was so cute when she was little <laughs> trying to ski but um yeah, they're they're adorable, and Ron forgot all the hard stuff because probably I was doing it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I loved um, I loved parenting little kids and elementary kids. You know, fascinating learning yeah. new things and throwing new kinds of fits. And I think the hardest part about parenting is like the transition pieces where they're moving from one development piece to the next, and you just figured out what they like and what they don't like and how they are and then they move on and you're like oh I made your favorite and they're like oh gross you know <laughs> so how so, dare you yeah and then that <laughs> turns into you know teenagers who roll their eyes at you and hate you and and then they move out and this magical thing happens and <laughs> they realize that laundry sucks and bills are expensive and um, um, cooking takes planning and time and mom's pretty great yeah <laughs> so yeah I, I I like parenting I'm glad to be in the stage we're in but yeah I loved a lot of pieces of the raising kiddos did you kind of always know you would want to be a mom or is that something that like you arrived at naturally or quickly or is that something that I don't know just as you and Ron wind up getting married and, and starting a family were those conversations easy or were they difficult for you guys? Uh, well, we're not real big planners. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I was a little bit pregnant on our first anniversary. And <laughs> a little bit pregnant. Yeah, a little bit pregnant. Sick as a dog and, and Ron got food poisoning that same weekend. So that was a good time. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, nine months later, here, here comes our baby. But um we, I always wanted to have kids. Like I remember thinking as a little girl, I wanted to have, you know, 12 or 14 actually. <laughs> oh my. And I used to sleep with all of my stuffed animals, not wanting any of them to be left out and feeling lonely. So yeah, I'm a collector of, of, you know, children and lost <laughs> pets and things of that. I'm a nurturer. <laughs> so yeah, always wanted to have kids. Never had a moment really to consider with my husband, you know, like, what do you want our family to be like? Cause boom, here it came. Yeah. So, yeah. So tell us about your daughters. So Elena's my oldest and she's, um, practicing law. She's working, um, at the courts in Denver and, um, really loving doing that. She loves, um, researching and reading for, for the judge. That's what she does. She's always been my, you know, detail, studious one. And Sophia's my middle and, um, she'll be 23 this week. So, um, she just graduated college and she's been trying to figure out, you know, a career during the pandemic. So far it's just, um, driving delivery and, um, she's my creative and spiritual one. And, um, and then we acquired my youngest child through some unnatural means. She was adopted when she was little. She came to live with us when she was seven. So we didn't really know her in her younger childhood years. But she came into our family and um, was a whole big ball of fun and crazy and wild. And we never knew what was going to happen with her. And uh, 
a lot of challenges with raising her because of some of the things she had going on. So, so what was that like when, cause obviously that was somewhat of a conversation that you and Ron are having about her joining your family as a seven year old. What was that like? I mean, was it kind of months of conversation or did it kind of happen really quickly? Yeah. So what happened quickly was that there was a death in my husband's family and because of the circumstances around it, we um, ended up starting to think about this little girl that really didn't have a caretaker anymore. And yeah, so Ron was talking with his family and figuring out that this little girl needed someone. And he came home one night um, from arranging things and just told me about her and that there's this seven-year-old who really didn't have a great living situation. And I did not even give much thought to it at all. I said, well, we can take her. (laughs) She can come up here and and live with us. And he said, well, I was hoping you'd say that. Um, We ended up just offering help at first um, and taking this little girl for weekends and holidays, school holidays, things like that. Um, And then uh, those got longer and longer. I remember the first Christmas that she stayed with us. She stayed days and days beyond the plan over Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Um, and I, you know, as strange as that was for her, it was it was strange for me, too, to try to understand a family who um, couldn't figure out how to have their kid around for Christmas. And so she was with us. And my family was really gracious, my extended family. Everybody, like spontaneously ran out and got more presents because we didn't realize we were going to have another kid, you know, at Christmas. And so, uh, and the girls were very sweet, um, about sharing just literally everything, um, beds and rooms and bathrooms and clothes because she came to us with absolutely nothing. She had a backpack from a social worker that was filled with some clothes that people sort of organized for this reason, but they were all the wrong size. One thing after another started happening to kind of open my eyes to the reality of what we just jumped into, um, which slowly became more and more a responsibility raising this child as as a foster parent situation. They put us into a program called kinship care because we're we were family related, and so we didn't have to go through the training that foster parents go through. And whether that was helpful or not helpful, I still don't know. Um, But at the time, I felt pretty confident in myself as a parent and a mother, and I already had two almost grown daughters, and so I felt like I knew what I was doing with a seven-year-old girl. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong um, because just one thing alone that she had in common with all foster kids is that moment when you're taken away or you're, you know, your, your biological parents, um, have issues and, and you have to leave. And, um, I just think that is such a big, big traumatic moment for any kid. And so I had to figure that out. Um, how to mother a kid like that, you know, at what point, or can you describe some of these moments where you start to realize 
this is going to look much different mm-hmm. than the experience of mothering my other two girls. So you talk about like, I learned pretty quickly this was going to be different. Can you talk about some of these moments where that started to crystallize or you started to really see um, this was going to require something so different from you? Yes. Yeah. This, this little girl was the first thing that I think tricked me a little bit was that her personality was very different and all kids, all kids have really different personalities, right? So I think that's one of the first things you learn when you're a parent of one child, then your second child comes and you realize, Oh wow, they're really different. (laughs) And then our third one came and again, very, very different personality. Um, she was wild, like jump on the furniture and swing from the rafters kind of wild, you know? And I have a pretty lively personality myself. So that didn't necessarily bother me. I was just surprised. This little girl came in. And so that was my first clue. Oh, and in my mind, I thought, okay, part of that's personality. And part of that's just a lack of, you know, discipline or or whatever parenting has, has been showing through there that she needs to be told some rules and she needs to be um, helped to understand how we behave in the house and that we don't, we shut the door, but we don't slam it and things like that. And at first um, that was just kind of, you know, me going into mom mode or teacher mode or whatever. I have a lot of modes like that. So that was fine. And it was kind of fun to have, uh, you know, a new vivacious person in our household too. I mean, a seven-year-old is really different than a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old. So, um, so those were some of my first clues, but I, like I said, it was kind of, I didn't perceive that as a clue of being a mother to a really different sort of kid that I just thought, you know, all kids are different. And this one's, you know, wow. Okay. I remember one time it was raining and this little girl said she wanted to go outside and uh, run in the rain. I said, it's a great idea, you know? And so that's just the kind of personality she had. And she came back in and wanted the shampoo. And then she went back out in the rain and in the backyard and just shampooed her hair in it and was singing. And, you know, this is the kind of kid she was and, uh, just kind of entertaining, um, on one level for us. Um, but then also trying to shape some of the behaviors that she came with was, um, challenging at first, when she came, she was not going to school because there was a whole transition there that foster parents are going to be familiar with that you have to get records transferred and these things. And so a few weeks of, it was just me and her and sitting around doing whatever grade level workbooks we found at the bookstore. And (laughs) I remember I took her to the library and uh, that had been one of the favorite parts of, um, childhood for my other two was going to the library and just wagon loads of books, you know, and coming home and just reading, reading, reading and studying different things and stories and all of it. And, um, this girl had never been to the library and her fascination was that they would let you take as many books as you want. How many can we take as many as we want? And she just piled them and piled them and piled them until I said, we have to be able to carry them you know, and, and then we can bring them back and they'll let us have more. And she said, they're all free. And it was just so astounding. Just some of these, 
what I thought were ordinary things that were so fantastic to, to her because she'd never done anything like that. So, so we spent the first few weeks and months, you know, sort of, you know, running the house and running errands and going to the library and trying to learn things because I'm a teacher. And so I didn't want her to like not learn things while she was transitioning schools and stuff. So, and luckily at the time I was not, I was just doing some freelance work. So I had my days open because I don't know how that would have looked otherwise. Hmm. I remember another clue was when uh, we went like the second day she was with us, we went to go buy her some clothes because she really just didn't have anything. Um, we went to Target and started shopping. And the first thing she did was um, scout out all of the security cameras and let me know where they were. And I was like, this is, this is different. I don't understand why we need to know this. And she's like, well, they're right there. So, and I'm still, I was like, I don't know why she did that. Was, was that a shoplifting thing? I don't know what was happening. So I just said, thank you very much for letting me know. <laughs> and now we're going to shop. And I had to explain all the rules for shopping with a little kid, you know, for a little kid who's not had a lot of rules and we don't hide in the clothes racks and play hide and seek and we don't scream and we don't yell at people and we don't run around and all these things. Cause she was just a ball of energy and, um, you know, came home with a few things to get through the next few days. We kept thinking that she would get her clothes back eventually, but that was a big battle. Um, and so that was another clue too. just what we began to have as far as interfacing with her biological mother. And it was very difficult to, get cooperation for anything parenting wise. Um, then social services was involved the whole time. And so those meetings were eye openers of meeting with social workers and therapists and, um, just different counselors and, and all the professionals that were working on this girl's case and with us. And then the first year we had her, it was mostly, just meetings with social workers and trying to figure out like what's the plan and you know and then um just as time wore on everyone involved began to realize that like a, the most stable plan would be for this little girl to stay with us and figure that out and so the next year began uh going to court going to court all year um meetings and meetings and meetings and then court proceedings and um, all kinds of court orders that we had to follow. And that was just, that's a whole new world I had not ever been involved with. So just it's people speak a different language in that world. People do things, different protocols that you just, unless you're in that world, you don't know what's going on. And we really didn't have other than social workers, caseworkers that were um, helpful to us, we didn't have anyone for a long time to sort of explain all these words and what they meant and all these papers and what was going on um, because there's acronyms and jargon and you just, you don't know. Um, and then, of course, I don't know. And this little girl is asking me what's going on and I'm trying to also break it down for a kiddo and... Uh, I just felt really ill-equipped and overwhelmed about all of that. It was nothing I had ever dealt with. Uh, and that's probably where I think uh, 
I don't know what they train you in in foster parent training, but maybe that's part of it. So that could be good because families don't know unless their family has had court things. So yeah, that was year two, just going through court. And um, the whole time, you know, we were doing what the state of Colorado requires, which is try to reunite biological families. That's, that's kind of like the philosophy of state of Colorado that they want to reunite biological families. Yeah. Um, which sounds good on some level, you know, families should be together. Um, but some situations like this one, it was, it just became uh, more, more traumatic to try to arrange visits and go to visits where a biological mom may or may not show up and she may or may not show up sober and she may or may not show up and push me and have the sheriff drag her out of the building. So meanwhile, you're also like translating this or trying to Mm -hmm. for this little girl. So I would imagine this tension, even in yourself building of, like you said, like, I guess I am supposed to want families reunited, but I'm also seeing how painful this is. And, and then what, what is this little girl's expectation and what is yours and how are they like crashing into each other? Yeah. I just would imagine that. Yeah, absolutely. This, this was a new, a brand new, very disturbing paradigm of a mother to me. Uh, I had never considered, um, like when you think about a foster kid situation, you know, there's certain problems that people can't overcome without help or whatever. They can't be a parent right now because of some problems that are going on. Okay. And they work through it and they get their kids back and whatever. That's kind of the way I thought of foster care before. And after having this experience, I ha- I had never really understood um, just from my experience with my mother, who was just very loving and caring and, you know, sacrifice anything to for her kids to have something and and that kind of mother. And it's just like all the mothers that are in the mother's day cards are like that, you know, (laughs) and um, I had never considered that there might be a mother who didn't really want their child. And it it wasn't a situation where, you know, there was a lot going on besides, you know, apathy and um, that, that I couldn't understand. And I don't think the social workers could understand that. I, I really think everyone was sort of making it what they thought it should be rather than observing it and pointing it out and saying, this is the situation and it's not okay. And yeah, like what you're saying, I have to explain that to this little girl. Why didn't your mom come today? And I, I think all foster parents must do this, that you, you have to keep a certain kindness in your heart for the child in order to explain that because I felt so angry and so like really upset with that person for not even showing up for a visit once a month or something. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a big commitment. And I just remember having to take a deep breath and try to in kid language explain, you know, that maybe you know, your mom will come next time. I don't really know where she was. And, um, the problem with our kiddo was that 
and, and this is the same with a lot of foster kids. She, she didn't have trust. She didn't trust anyone, right? Because her trust had already been broken. The idea of trust had been broken for her with her own biological family. And so um, when I said things to her to try to explain the unexplainable, you know, she just didn't believe me. She just thought I wouldn't tell her I was lying or something like that, which is pretty normal probably for a foster kid um, not to trust what they're being told because guess what? They've been told a lot of things and um, they were, you know, misled. Um, so yeah, that, that was incredibly hard. Um, but at the same time, we were able to, um, have all the resources, um, given to us, um, from her caseworkers. We had therapists, we had, you know, books and counseling sessions and, uh, Santa for foster kids and like all these things that, um, the department of human services tries to provide for this, you know, this, these types of families that need help. And, um, so that was, that was something. And I think it helped our girl feel more like, you know, someone is caring and, and we're having fun at these different things. And here's a free toys and all these, you know, things that it's, it's odd when you come from it as a parent already, like I'm already a parent and like, I'm going to get my kids Christmas toys. And then also this one's going to have extra Christmas toys because they came from the human services department. (laughs) And My older girls, you know, they're old enough where it wasn't a big deal, but it kind of is weird, you know, like I'm not totally in charge and neither are they and neither is the biological family. And here's a child kind of caught in the middle of all of these, you know, it's conference room table full of professionals and no one can really raise a child quite as well as just, you know, some loving parents. So yeah, that's what we were dealing with the second and third year we had this little girl. And uh, the fourth year I think was when we were allocated parental rights. And that's a mouthful that I told our girl basically meant she was adopted. I was like, that's how that is. Because at that point, you know, she's in elementary school, she understands what adoption is. And that made more sense. Like, there's not this threat hanging over her, which was the whole time, like, am I going to be snatched away and ride with the sheriff and go to another home or another foster home or back to biological mom or whatever is going to happen. So I was hoping that showing her that APR document and explaining what that means would solidify and um, make her more secure you know, feeling like this is your family, this is your home, you can hang with us forever, and it's totally fine. Um, but she she also felt, you know, a, a divide there, like a lot of foster kids do, especially ones like her, which she had already seven years with her bio family, and so that's a lot of um, loyalty there you know, and, and, um, a lot of foster kids feel like, you know, they're, they're cheating or something on their biological family. If they allow themselves to, you know, love their next family or their foster family or whoever's taking care of them. And so I think it was always hard for her to go back and forth and, um, to figure out how she felt about us. And, um, the whole time, I see, I don't know how to do things 
sort of halfway. And so the whole time, as soon as she came into our house, I was just treating her the same as I would treat any child of mine. And so, you know, hugging and kissing and tucking into bed and reading stories and I love you. And um, the first issue we had with that was what would she call me? And that um, she, we decided, my older girls, we had read Little Women and we, all three of us, just love, love, love that book so much. And in the book they called their mother Marmy. Mm-hmm. And so we decided, yeah, this little girl, you can call me Marmy. So it was kind of like a mom-like word, but not exactly because she already, mom is her mom and I am Rebecca and Rebecca seemed a little too strange. And so, yeah, she called me Marmy for a while. And then when she was probably in third grade, she decided the kids at school were asking too many questions about who that lady was that was picking her up and why is that your mom? And I think for her, it just became another moment of she wanted to fit in and she wanted to feel normal. And so at some point when she was whatever, nine or so, eight or nine, she said, can I just call you mom? And of course, for a mom, that's like a really tender moment. She didn't mean it that way. She, it was more practical. (laughs) She just wanted to be like all the other kids who called their mom, mom. And, um, you know, I like, like most things in this chapter of my life, I didn't think too much about it. And I said, sure. Um, but at the same time, she was starting to deal with all of these things that had suddenly come crashing down and landed her at our house instead of with her biological mother. And so the way that little kids deal with a lot of that is with their behavior and her behavior was, um, radical and wild and, but it was also terrible, terrible. Um, she started to do and say things that I never would have imagined from a seven, eight, nine year old. Um, and most of it was, um, well, it was depression and, and anger. Um, and that's weird to find a kid who's that young and depressed. You don't think of it that way. I, I never did. Um, but yeah, she started threatening to kill herself when she was seven. So that's fairly young, I would say, to be that depressed. And she would throw things and hide you know, hide from people. Um, she had this thing where she would stare at people and stare out the window and stare out the car window and make a mental note of everything happening around her. It was like, um, you know, a soldier who comes back from war and it's, it feels like PTSD kind of thing. It's, um, called hypervigilance. And so just some of the trauma made her want to always know who's behind her and what that noise was and who's walking down the street and what are all the names of the neighbors and their kids and their dogs, you know, and stuff like that. And, uh, and where the security cameras at target are. <laughs> exactly. So that was weird. And, you know, for a while we were just like, Oh my gosh, isn't she cute and funny and how odd. Um, but you know, it, it kept on in it and, um, we would go to her therapy sessions and, and talk to her professionals about it and what can we do and what are strategies and there was really nothing for that it's just something that either wears away or doesn't and but then we were working on her um, defiant behaviors she was very angry as well as being depressed and the the defiance is um, uh, 
you know, it's fine when a kid is five, six, seven years old, they stamp their foot and they tell you no, and you tell them yes. And then you literally pick them up and put them wherever you told them to go and it's fine. But when they start getting older and you can't actually pick them up and, or if you're in public and they're doing something and you tell them no, and they say yes. And it, it it's, um, it's something that unless you've had a, a defiant child, you, it's, it's, it's more than just misbehavior. You know, it's more than just spoiled brat. It's, um, it, there was a deep, deep anger that she had and, and rightly so. Like there's been a lot of stuff thrown at her in her young life. And so she was angry. And, um, so then we got into this pattern, um, where she would ask for something and I would say no. And, then she would say, you never say yes. You always say no. And that, that was kind of true. And so then one therapist suggested around that time, you know, try to say yes as often as possible or maybe, or not now, or just anything besides no, because she was so used to being shut down. But the things that she was asking for, um, were kind of, you know, things that were difficult, like, <laughs> can I take the five pound sugar bag and grow sugar in the garden? No, you can't, but maybe later, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were kind of wild things cause she had a weird idea of how things work. Um, but, and then she just also was the anger would sometimes come out with just violent behavior. Um, my shins were pretty bruised up for a while. She would kick me and, um, just thrashing around when she was throwing a fit or something like that. Uh, I went to the special education teacher I know, and I said, you've got to teach me some techniques and like, how do I hold this child so that she's not hurting me or hurting herself when she's throwing an angry fit, you know? And so, yeah, this woman helped me with that. And, and I was able to help my child with that a little bit, but more helpful was trying never to get to that escalated of a point where it's like the wall's going to be damaged or the furniture's going to be knocked down or something like that. But, uh, mostly she would act out, you know, after she had a phone call with her mom or after she had a visit with her mom and it, you know, it's just poking at that tender wound of, of family that she had. And, and then, you know, I would take her home and deal with all her behavior. And so as a mom, I, I started to really resent that. Like I also wanted the good stuff, you know, like I wanted to sit for an hour with this child and just eat junk food and play games like she did with her bio mom at these visits. And instead I was, you know, driving home with a screaming child in the backseat for an hour or, talking her through tears for several hours and explaining to her the why and the why not of different things in her life. And there really was no answer. You know, it was just trying to comfort a child like that. And, um, yeah, so that was really, really hard. And, and meanwhile, um, she's getting older and some of these behaviors were getting better. Some of them were not. Um, I feel like when we were just doing family things, like if we went on vacation or went somewhere together out to eat, she would behave much better because we were all there. There was kind of an example and she 
everyone around in her perception saw her as our third child and this was her family. Um, and so sometimes that would be fine and that would work out fine. Um, but she always had, um, underlying, you know, the anger and the issues were always there. They don't go away. Do you at any point in this piece, do you at any point feel like you are, are failing or it's like, I just can't find the right technique or were you able to hold that perspective of this is just this little girl's trauma and her anger and her pain. And that's not really about me. Or did you have to fight feeling like I'm trying everything and it's me Mm -hmm. who can't find the right equation or the right doctor or the right whatever, or was that not a part of the equation for you? Oh, it's definitely a part. I think it's, it's all mixed together. I, I'm a type of person that I just um, keep trying more things and reading more books and working on it and talking to more people. And I just dig in harder if I have a problem, Um, which in this case, (laughs) that was bound to fail. Um, Yeah, I didn't necessarily feel like a parent failure. And I think I think it must be harder. And I thought this at the time, I think it must be harder for people who don't have other children. If they just had a child with some of these issues, I can't imagine how they would feel like they were helping at all or doing any sort of good parenting at all. There were days that um, there was broken glass and slammed doors and bruises. And this child um, wreaked havoc in our home. And, you know, our girls were old enough to where they just kind of went elsewhere. So then it really became me and this child having a battle. My husband traveled for work quite extensively. And so, um, I felt like it was the two of us a lot trying to battle it out or me trying not to battle it out, like trying to use all these techniques that therapists give you and keep, keep your voice calm and do, you know, so that what's happening inside me and, and what I'm actually doing is very different. Like inside I am seething with rage. Like I am so angry that someone treated this child so horribly And we started to find out, you know, more and more of some of the stuff that she had dealt with. And, you know, honestly, that helped me because it, it, um, was horrible, but it, it made me kind of more compassionate, renewed my compassion for her even though, you know, she would yell at me, I hate you, I hate you, that kind of thing. And, um, but I knew like, it's both at the same time, I knew who she hated and what she hated. And I knew it wasn't me. But also it, there were very few, like tender moments, there wasn't, you know, very few times where she 
would say kind things to me or allow herself to express an emotion to me that was positive. Um, and somewhere along the way in her therapy, we discovered that she had reactive attachment disorder. And so that became a whole new research project for me to figure out what is that and how do you deal with that? And let me get all the books on that and let me join all the support groups for that. And, um, uh, you, that's not really a diagnosis that you would ever wish for anyone. Um, because it's not something that anyone has really overcome ever. There's no treatment. Um, and it's really the, the, the fiber of who you are as a human being has been damaged so that you do not relate to other people in a social way. You don't, um, you don't allow yourself or, or your trauma doesn't allow you to, um, feel love to receive it or to give it. Um, so I don't know. We watched this really strange movie one night, which Ron will tell you happens a lot at our house. (laughs) (laughs) I have terrible movie, um, movie choices, but, um, (laughs) anyway, it was about this family who had tried to have a child for so many years and then they couldn't. And then it was in the future. And so then they decided to adopt a robot child yeah, weird movie, I told you. <laughs> but I just remember watching that and thinking, that's what we've done. We have a robot child. And um, that's, um, you know, a little more simplistic than what it actually is. But RAD feels like that. It just, it feels like someone is going through the motions and um, there's just never any of those um, subtle things that you take for granted with a relationship with anyone else where someone puts an arm around you and says, Hey, how was your day? And it feels like they care and their emotions are there with you and you can reciprocate that. Um, and our little girl just, just, she never really did that. And I think for the first few years we had her, we were dealing with so much behavior that that RAD piece was undercurrent of all of it, but we didn't you know, pull it out and examine it and say, Oh yeah, this is a problem. And like I said, it's, it's nothing that anyone really knows what to do about other than just, you know, different management techniques of how to, you know, encourage, um, kids like that to, um, express their emotions and to read other people's emotions and all that. So, um, it, a lot of things can cause RAD, uh, RAD, but, um, a lot of times it is an early, early trauma. And, um, in this case it was early neglect and, um, just never getting your needs met as an infant, um, shapes your understanding in your brain that you need to fend for yourself and no one is trustworthy. And that is so early and so cemented in there that it's it, for our kid, it became impossible to, to ever change that. So, um, so yeah, at some point I did feel like a failure and because everyone thinks, well, they say this, but let's just try it, you know, and maybe I can help and maybe, um, and then that's, that's sort of the part where, uh, 
my faith in God began to change a little bit because at the beginning, I never questioned anything. I just thought, you know, circumstances were sort of God's way of, of guiding and putting things in your path and um, creating opportunities for us. And I, I felt that way when Ron came home and, and told me about this girl. And, and I felt like, you know, that's just God calling us to to help. And it can happen a million different, way less drastic ways, but this was the way it was happening then. And I, that's how I considered it for, for several years that God had picked this out and chosen this situation and reframed this little girl's family for her and thank God. And, um, and then when the RAD became the obvious diagnosis and, um, the things we were dealing with didn't seem like they would ever sort themselves out. Then I began to ask God questions, you know, like, okay, so what's, what was your plan again? <laughs> because how do you expect me to help this child when it's impossible? Like from reading all the literature and, and talking with other parents who were dealing with kids um, with RAD, um, there, there just weren't any hopeful stories. And, you know, um, it's funny because in, in a Christian community, there's, there's a lot of encouragement sometimes, but I think, um, I, I'm a smart person. And so if you're encouraging me, but your story is not encouraging, I, I'm wondering do you even realize what happened in your story? Because it wasn't a good ending. And, you know, people, I think, have good intentions sometimes, but I, I would rather have been told there's no real help for this. We can give you some coping strategies. We can make sure you get your me time <laughs> to recharge your batteries because that's, I think I, I shifted over to that at some point because, um, it was my efforts to try and, um, show emotions and affection to my child were so often met with anger and, you know, that I, I just began to say, you know, I have to, I have to take care of myself because I am not just this child's mother. I'm also, you know, wife and a mother to two other girls and, um, trying to be other things as well. Like we all are right. Trying to be a friend and trying to be a person at work and trying to do some things. And, um, instead of trying harder and harder and harder with her, I, I started to just, you know, do the, do the coping strategy and do whatever would get us through the day with the least amount of yelling and, and, um, least amount of doors slammed and, um, ended elementary school. And, you know, I think all parents are a little bit nervous ending elementary school. And then the next year comes and guess what? Your kid's going to be in middle school and all hell will break loose. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was actually, I felt the opposite, uh, about my third third daughter going to middle school, I felt like it would be a clean slate for her and like a new opportunity and all of the things that we had worked through 
over the you know last few years in elementary school with friendships and what is appropriate to talk about at school and what is not appropriate and how to get in trouble at school and how to stay out of it and all these things I felt like you know maybe we'll have a clean slate and so we'd have that conversation a lot uh the summer before sixth grade that you know this this is a new start and you can choose who you want to be and choose your choices and um and we talked about activities that she can be involved in, how fun, you know, middle school has all kinds of things. She wanted to do sports and, you know, music and clubs and all these things. And um, she lasted two days in sixth grade before I got a phone call from the principal. And after that, it was probably two or three times a week that I would have to go in listen to what had happened now and she would have gone through their whole discipline program several times and no one knew what to do and special meetings had to be called and at one point I remember they wanted to talk to her therapist which we had not been seeing for a while but her therapist came in and and shared some techniques that she had shared with me that were kind of helpful in dealing with some of the behaviors and all the teachers were you know, ooing and aahing about these different things that you can do <laughs> to de-escalate a child with reactive attachment. Um, and so almost the first, at the end of, toward the end, it was like the fall, the first semester, and she finally did something bad enough where the principal said, you know what, we can't really have her anymore. And, and they said they would have to expel her. And I thought, oh, that's going to be bad because on all the forms that you fill out, it says, have you ever been expelled? And I was like, I don't know what happens if you put yes, but I don't think it's going to be good. I don't want to find out. Yeah. You know, and again, it's nothing I had ever dealt with, with my other kiddos. So I didn't know. But um, then we found a, a private school that, that this was their specialty, sort of foster care kids and um, kids who just had different behavior problems, things like that. And so uh, one of their ideas at this new school was that they don't kick people out ever for any reason. And I thought, oh, well, you haven't been mine yet, but mm, we'll see. And so we transferred her up there for the rest of sixth grade. And then the the staff and the faculty at that school um, started calling us all the time as well and um, just couldn't deal with her and couldn't didn't know how to handle different situations. Um, that became, that was a common theme with, with our child for the whole time was that the teachers and the counselors and the professionals kind of were like, I don't know. And can you come get her? Because I don't know. I'm curious if, you know, in just years of, of getting, you know, the phone call from school and having to go pick her up, and that being such also a foreign experience from your other two girls, was there any sense of like maybe even shame for you in here I am picking up my kid again? And if you don't really know all these pieces about RAD and if you don't understand that that would other parents or other people in your life would look at that curiously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember, I remember the moment that that shifted for me actually, because for the longest time I didn't 
I, I didn't even consider like it's this is I didn't do all of this foundational work with this child. <laughs> this is not um, my fault. Um, I, it just never entered my mind to be ashamed of of the behavior. And of course, at schools, you have to fill out all of these forms and all the paperwork. And so for sure, classroom teachers in elementary school, I mean, like, um, even at middle school, when we started, like people knew that this was a different situation. And I, um, but then it was about eighth grade, um, when my daughter was on a soccer team and, um, she, (laughs) she started bullying the other girls on the soccer team and it's a soccer team. So no one knows that I'm not, I haven't been her mom forever. And I felt the most incredible shame. I was the bully's mother. And I just thought, wow, that's what this feels like. Like no one would, I mean, everyone feels justified. Mothers for sure feel justified in shame. Shame on you, bully's mother. Why don't you teach your child to be kind and, you know, not to say terrible things to the other girls or make them do other things, whatever. And I just thought, you know, already for a long time, I had not been um, the type of mom who walks through the grocery store and sees a kid throwing a fit and goes, well, they need to discipline their child. Already I had dropped that because I knew, like, no one knows what's going on. Like, what is really going on? We don't know. And then when that happened, that's, that's when, like I said, it it shifted for me that, that, um, it doesn't really matter if I, um, have been this child's mother forever or not. Like I'm her mom. Like it's, it is what it is. And if she's having terrible behaviors, I'm her mom. And I, I felt too like that was almost the halfway mark where we had been the mom as, as long as her other mom, you know? And so, um, yeah, I just stopped dividing it, I guess. I was just like, well, yep, I'm here, I'm here to pick up my delinquent. And that's just who I became. I was, I was the mom and I am sure that people had conversations about me and about my husband and our family and what terrible parents we are. Um, because I've had those conversations, you know, and how unfair was that? Did you, cause I know that decision, you know, when Ron came home and said, there's this girl and you're like, well, yeah, she can come stay with us. Did you instantly just love her? You know, I felt exactly the same way as I felt taking my newborn babies home from the hospital. I had that same feeling, which is so odd. I didn't know this girl. I hadn't met her. Um, I, I knew her name. I knew what she had looked like younger because we got, you know, like family pictures. Um, but when they called me and said, we're bringing her to your home tonight. I, it was that same emotion of, Oh, I'm in labor, you Mm -hmm. know, or here's your baby. And they hand you your baby in your arms. It was the exact same emotion. And, um, this little baby came, came home the same way, you know, screaming and crying. She was seven, but she was a hot mess. And, um, yeah, I loved her. Yeah. So she, 
finished seventh grade at the private school and we decided not to send her back there another year because the principal and the assistant principal were really quite overwhelmed with all of the kids they had, it seemed to us and on all of their problems. And they were not as on top of things that were happening at school as we felt comfortable with. And, um, I remember that summer things got so bad. We just took her door off of her room for a while, you know, <laughs> which some parents maybe can relate to that and others are cringing. But, um, <laughs> once she got into upper elementary middle school, I felt like I was trying to keep her safe. That was most often my task, like trying to keep her safe from herself, from the decisions that she would make. And, you know, so that's why the rules that we made for her or the ways that we tried to control things that she did, it was all kind of with an eye to let's at least make sure she's safe. Like at least we can do that maybe. So we decided to begin high school at a charter school. And so yet another new school. Um, but we, we decided that we would just work all summer with a few, like three goals. And we would just really positively reinforce some behavior with our child and see where we would be come August for high school. And I was having the same kind of conversations with her that I did right before middle school where I was saying, you know, we got a brand new slate again here, kiddo. And, and um, you can be whoever you want, which I know is, is part of adolescence. You're trying to figure out who you are and you know, all the kids around you are helping you or not. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So she started out the year um, and so she started to go and talk with the school counselor and found out pretty quickly that, um, school counselors are always your friend and which is great. But for a child like mine, um, who really has trouble navigating, um, the truth, it was very difficult to get calls from counselors who were telling me things that my child had said and were for sure questioning me as a parent at that point. Um, based on what my child was telling them. And she only ended up being a freshman in high school for about a month before she sort of had a breakdown emotionally at school. And her friends um, were really concerned and took her to the counselor. Um, and they took her to the counselors and the counselors were immediately, you know, whatever the highest level of concern is and calling us. And of course, by this time, my husband and I are <laughs> exhausted and we know, and it's not a shock to us that our child said or did anything. And I think, you know, counselors can hear that in your voice. And I don't, these counselors didn't like that very much that I was kind of over it. Um, but at that point I for sure was, I was just tired, I think. And so they said, well, they, it happened just circumstances are dumb sometimes. And the day that, um, this final breakdown happened, her main counselor was 
out that day. And this was a woman who had also been a counselor for my other two girls. And so she knew our family and the situation and us as parents having parented the other two. And she was out and it was a different counselor that day who didn't know everything and only knew a few of the interactions that we had had where I had kind of drawn a line and said no to a couple of their suggestions, um, which in my view were fairly naive um, because it's not a regular thing. It's not something that school counselors are well-versed in. And we had had other counselors, professional, you know, specialists who had said, I don't know. So I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying circumstances were kind of dumb. And this substitute counselor that was there that day said, you need to come immediately and take her to the hospital because she says she's suicidal or we will call the police and have them take her. I said, okay. So I got off the phone and I was talking with my husband and we were debating what we actually had this conversation debating what to do, which would be better for our reactive attachment disorder child to have the police take her because they're not us or for us to take her and for her to perceive maybe that we were caring about her. We really didn't know. And those were sort of the decisions that we had impossible all the time to, to figure out what's the opposite of what you would normally do. That's normally, you know, that's how we would try to figure out what to do. So I don't know if it was good or bad, but we decided to go in and get her and take her to the hospital ourselves. And then this becomes the season of the mental health care system failing, uh, which if anyone has any experience in it, they know it's just not, it's not, um, I think it's a rare story that someone is healed and made well. Um, and, and awesome if that's your story, but for us dealing with something as severe as reactive attachment, it was not a happy time to sort of delve into mental health care became our new, our new life. And they, she, our child would say and do whatever she could easily figure out that whoever was talking to her wanted her to say and do so that she could then be moved to a facility and stay in a facility longer. And she ended up being in and out of mental health facilities for the rest of that year. Um, mostly in and every, I mean, I had to write them all down to keep it all straight, but every A to Z medication for depression, ADHD, um, seizure disorders, which she did not have, you know, they just try everything. It seemed to me. And, uh, I was okay at that point with going down this Avenue. We had not before. And I knew a lot of other foster parents who had began to medicate their kids, um, because of some of the behaviors that, that they were dealing with as well, just to calm things down. And I understood that. Um, but we hadn't done anything like that before. So that was her first time to just on all these medications, I remember going to see her and she would like be falling asleep on the table and just zombie and just, you know, it's, it was good because she wasn't yelling at me, but it was not, like I said in the beginning, her personality is, that's not it. Like she's vivacious and let's go do something and let's kick a soccer ball and let's, you know, and to see her, you know, suddenly 
gaining 10 and 15 pounds on this medication and just being a sloth and like falling asleep and slurring her speech. And it was just, sometimes I couldn't go. We were supposed to go to these visiting hours all the time. And and sometimes I just sat in the car and, and made my poor husband go in by himself because you don't talk about it. You, you talk about nothing, you, you know, if she'll talk to you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she wouldn't talk to me because she'd just be mad. And, and then when we weren't there, they were trying to tease out all these things that had happened. And when she would say my mom, they wouldn't know, was she talking about me or was she talking about biological mom? And you know, that got confused. And, um, one lawyer who decided she was going to save the day decided to, um, subpoena me and bring me to court on child abuse charges because she got confused and my child had been describing her other mom. And yeah, so I sat, sat in court and tried to, um, you know, explain that I had not done those things. And, um, after it was over, I, I let loose my anger on that lawyer and I feel like that was okay. We, at the end of that, I just, again, the psychologists and psychiatrists and people with many, many initials after their names, um, were telling us, okay, here's your child back. And there was nothing different. There was nothing really solved. We had a minimal dose of some kind of medication that would make her a little more mellow. I was about it. It was like basically like taking cough syrup. And, um, they said, so take her home. There you go. And I, she went to go get her stuff at the, that last place. And, um, we were sitting in the waiting, you know, the waiting area and the visiting room or whatever. And I just burst into tears and I, it, it felt to me like, Oh, we have to start over, you know, and that, that by that time had been, you know, eight years. And I remember I couldn't stop crying and I didn't for like four hours. And so we're driving in the car and like, my husband doesn't know what to do. Cause you know how men are when you're crying. They're just like, Oh, please for the love. <laughs> I'll give you anything. Um, but I, re- I really couldn't stop. And then she gets in the car and sees me in this state and I'm so sad. And in her mind, I was going to be happy. This is what her therapist had told her that her parents would be so happy to have her come home. And I was nowhere near happy. I was so overwhelmed and so exhausted and I had no idea how I was going to find, you know, like the strength to, to have daily battles again, because as bad as it had been for her to be in and out of mental hospitals that year, we had also had some moments in our house where the the doors were not being slammed and I was not being called a bitch every day. And, you know, that was like a reminder of, you know, how your day is supposed to go. Not every day is supposed to be horrible. So we finally made it back home and that didn't last very long before she said or did something that we had to, um, you know, call the police and she ran away a little bit, but she never was a big running away girl. Um, she refused to take her medication. So then she would not calm down. So then she was 
you know, hurting me. And my husband was flipping out because by that time she was big enough and old enough to like actually really hurt me. And my other daughter called her sister. And I mean, it was just, she attempted suicide at home again and the ambulance. I just, I literally never met two of my neighbors for eight years because we (laughs) so often had problems at my house and, um, the police and the ambulance and stuff were always there. And I was just literally like, this is so silly, but I was embarrassed. I was like, I did not want to meet anyone. I didn't want them to know like what's going on at that house again, you know? So, um, we ended up sending her to a group home facility that was about an hour away. And, um, we would go and see her on weekends and I felt really guilty, but I also felt like our home was peaceful and, um, that was kind of cool. And I didn't, I didn't like going up to see her. It would always be a question of what has she done? And we had to hear about that. And then was she going to talk to me or not? And it was just really painful and nothing was really helping. And so it was just good to have her separate for a while. Um, but then all those things have to come to an end and, um, she came back, but, uh, the whole time she was back, she refused to unpack her duffel bags of, you know, her things. And she was, she got it in her head that she was going to readmit herself to one of her favorite mental institutions she had been at that year. And so she literally called them multiple times every day and explained who she was and how she needed to come back there. Well, I mean, she's still, she's just a kid. So she doesn't really understand like there's insurance and there's doctor's orders. And by that time she was a well-known case in the mental health community and they knew exactly what to do or say to sort of not have her be on their patient list because it was a problem whenever she was and they couldn't really help. And so, um, we tried to tell her, you know, you can't really do that. Like that's not, but like she had the whole time. She didn't believe us. We're not trustworthy. We had to enroll her in school. And that was another big question mark. Where would she go now? Well, we found yet another private school for um, at-risk kids, they call them now, at this school. Um, And so they accepted her there, and she started to go there. Well, she learned some really fun new things there, like how to get a stolen cell phone. and, um, And then she got the phone and she got back in touch with some of her biological family and they started sending her money secretly. We didn't know. And she decided she was going to go back and live with them. And so we found out about all this. Um, she didn't know we knew, but we knew. And so we started having conversations about like, this is not a sustainable life right now with this child being so unhappy. Like she's literally just has her duffel bags in her room. She refuses to unpack, you know? And, um, so, uh, my husband and I had, you know, the hardest discussion about, okay, what if she goes back to her biological family? And this is the same family who, you know, had had their child taken away and, and all of that. So, really painful to talk about it. Um, 
in terms of let's send her back. Um, and I, I just remember I, I went for a walk down to the park by our neighborhood because I needed to call our attorney and, and ask her to what we needed to do to sort of undo her adoption and all of the things. And, um, I was just, my attorney is a wonderful, wonderful person, but I was a hot mess and I just, I'm scaring people walking their dogs because (laughs) I'm just walking through the park crying and talking to my attorney and you know how when you scream cry and you just, people are like scared and then you make these other odd noises and it was just, I was just, yeah, I was at the end and, um, you know, but, but that's what, what we ended up doing. We just put enough legal paperwork between us and her biological family that they couldn't harm us in any way. Like they couldn't come after us financially or legally or any kind of whatever we could think of that would possibly happen. And, um, we didn't want to, um, we wanted her to stay in our family. We wanted to, um, convince her that it would be okay, um, for her to love us, but we, we never could do that. And we loved her terribly. And, um, we knew, and it was funny because, um, I used to pray this way that, that I would, um, uh, read through scripture and, and I would pray about, you know, very specifically, what is God, what's the next step? What does God want me to do? And, um, during that time, the scripture was the prodigal son. I think it was in Luke and, and just how the, the father of that son lets him go. And, and, um, I said, I said, Ron, we have, we have to let her go. And, um, I couldn't, um, she was just so giddy when we finally made that decision. We were heartbroken and she was just packing up all of her stuff. And of course it was all the stuff that we had given her, you know? And, um, then I just, I couldn't be there. I was, it was too much for me to be there when she was literally moving out. And so, and she's only 15. So not done with high school, you know, not done. And I, I finished cooking my other two children and pulled them out of the oven and said, look at these amazing cookies. And I knew like (laughs) this one, (laughs) this one's not quite ready. Um, and so I just, I went to the parking lot of the Walgreens and I sat there looking at my phone because we had, um, we had installed cameras in our house. So I, um, just watched on the camera, um, her biological family come and carry all her boxes out to the car. And she didn't say goodbye to my husband. She said goodbye to the cat and, and she left. And, um, you know, people who know this whole story or who've been in my life this whole time always ask me if I've, if I know anything or if I've heard anything. And, um, you know, my child always was disordered in her attachment. And so, leaving is her specialty. And so she doesn't, she never connected and she's, she's not going to. And, um, it's painful for us because we connect and I, 
you know, for a, a while we, we tried to, you know, we're going to send messages, texting or calling or things like that, but she never reciprocated just the same way that she did the whole time she was living with us. She never reciprocated any kind of connection. And so we sent, you know, holiday greetings, birthday cards, things like that for the first year or so. But at the same time, you know, I was kind of dealing with uh, what felt to me like just a grief of losing a child. And I, it's probably like if someone has actually lost a child, um, I don't know how different that feels, but, um, it's also a weirder thing to lose a child and then sometimes randomly hear about something that she's doing or, um, literally run into her. (laughs) Um, super weird. Um, for a year, I would say it was hard for me to answer simple questions. Like how many kids do you have? Um, and then I, I think I just started working through it just the way you do with a grief and accepting it. And, you know, it's, it's terrible and it's sad and it's not the way anybody saw it ending, but I wrestled with God about what was the point of all that. Um, and mostly the answer I came up with was that we kept her safe. You know, we, she wasn't further abused or traumatized living with us. And she got to grow up another eight years before she went back. And, um, she got to see a different style of family and she got to experience love and care and connection, even though she couldn't return it. And I just remember one of the therapists at the hospital where she was for quite a while, um, was, was trying to tell me that she, that my child loved me. Like she said, like we were just talking, just the therapist and I, and she said, you know, your daughter said that she loves you. And I looked at that therapist and I said, I'm sure she did. I said, she knows what you want to hear. I said, I don't need her to love me, you know? Um, I took her, you know, for any way she was going to be. It, it didn't matter. Of course, I would want her to love me. But the fact that she wasn't, that she was having such a hard time overcoming all of her stuff, and, and I totally understood that, that's okay, too. I didn't want to live, you know, with with all of the anger and the, violent behaviors and things, of course, but I didn't, I just was trying to make that therapist understand that. (laughs) And it seems silly to me too, because I'm just the mom and like, they study these things and get degrees in them. And yet they didn't really seem to understand like, this is reactive attachment disorder. She is, she does not, that's the definition. She does not love me. Um, and finally this therapist, um, started to talk about her and said something in, along the lines of it's the most extreme case she had ever seen and that that my child is severely damaged and that if you put what is inside of her mind and her emotions on a physical level, she was sim- more similar to a quadriplegic in a wheelchair emotionally. And I just the severely damaged part of that stuck with me. And I, that helped me in the next few months that we still had her to 
to manage to just think of her like that, like so, so damaged and so broken. And it's not anything I can do or fix or whatever. It's just a matter of, you know, how much I can tolerate and how much she can tolerate and what to do next. And, um, I don't see her. We don't talk. She doesn't ever reach out. She, um, oddly enough, reaches out to other people in our family, not anyone in the immediate family, just other relatives. So I hear the by the by news sometimes, which I finally told, um, I told my mom because she'll call my mom once in a while, which is super weird to me. Um, and my mom will give me the play by play. She used to. And I finally told my mom, I was like, mom, I can't, I can't do that. That's too painful. Um, just the idea that she's calling someone that's not me and uh, still wanting to relate to, to, you know, my family, but not me. Um, I, I think I'm a lot uh, more tolerant as a result of it, which I think I like about myself. I don't know what's going on with other people and I don't care. And I just feel like I, I like other people and I, I think, uh, the older girls and I have, have gotten close just in the last couple of years. Um, because I think this happens in every family when you have one kid who is taking all of your attention and all of your resources and all of your energy that the other kids suffer and they're like ignored and, you know, and so the last couple of years have been healing, healing years for, you know, my relationship with my middle daughter and my older daughter and just, um, it's a, it's a new stage, you know, where I'm not necessarily in the mom role. I'm more of just a support and I'm still the mom. Like I would never say, no, we're just friends. Cause that's kind of weird. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's a, it's a good season to just be like supportive and listen to my daughters and what their concerns are and what their joys are. And, and to have that is, is, um, is really precious. Cause you know, some people like my third daughter, they'll, they'll just never have it. They'll just never have it. So it's, it's even more precious to me to have good mom and daughter, um, relationships with my other two, you know, do you still sit here today and, and, and believe in a God that would be good when, when everything is, is probably saying this story, this story doesn't have a good ending. Like everything you've known and experienced has said, she does not have the end of her story does not get better. How is it that you have kept believing Mm -hmm. in Jesus? Yeah, I think the hardest thing to believe or to understand is um, how God can be all-powerful and Jesus can heal anything, but then there's like a footnote, except <laughs> this little thing called reactive attachments disorder is beyond the supernatural. And I I don't get that. Like how, like if, if God can create the world and, um, 
create people and our brains themselves? Like, how is this stronger than him? But I always come back to the fact that I believe that God um, wants us to love him by choice. And so he gives everybody freedom. And my child has freedom as well. Now that gets complicated because do you have freedom when you have that kind of a mental disability where your brain doesn't function the way that it was designed and it doesn't connect the way that it needs to connect for you to have meaningful relationships with anyone, not, not the least of whom would be God. And so it gets a little tricky. And I used to be the kind of person, the kind of Christian who needed to sort out everything that she believes and, and put it all right there. And that's what I think about that and the end. Um, and I just don't think I'm that kind of believer anymore. I, I don't, I don't know. And, and I'm okay not to know. And I'm okay to sit, um, in a sad place. And I honestly, I I think that because all of my screaming and crying prayers, please heal my child were not answered the way I thought they should be. I, you know, I think, I think God's a little sad about that too. You know, like obviously he couldn't do it and how heartbreaking, not just for me, but how heartbreaking for him. He couldn't help. And I don't know, you know, exactly what the theology is on that, but he could not help because I feel like he would have. Um, And, you know, maybe it's something else, but um, I still think he's good. That's why I think he's sad probably. (laughs) But, and I just, you know, for like that first year I, like I said, I was just grieving and that's a whole process. And I think I was kind of grieving my, the type of faith I had in the beginning where I was a little more innocent and a little more just gung ho. God wants me to do this. I'm going to do it. He's going to be there and everything's going to work out fine. And that's a loss too. That's not, that's a kind of, um, a juvenile faith, I think, because a lot of things don't work out. A lot of things do, but a lot of things don't. And, um, and that, you know, God has to be there somewhere too. If, if you believe that God is everywhere, then he's there too in the not working out parts, you know? So at this point, um, I'm, I'm terrified of God, <laughs> you know, the Old Testament talks a lot about fearing the Lord, and I never got that, and now I do. I'm terrified. Um, sometimes I pray, God, please don't send anything else my way. I'm I'm real good. I can't do it anymore, and um, but I'm scared, you know, that He will. Um, and I think, you know, also like it wasn't about me. It. it I think it was about this child who just, she needed someone to make her lunch and she just needed someone to get her to school and to make sure she had clean socks. And 
on some level, I'm fine with that. I can do that. I'm, I can be that mom. And, um, if she's never going to snuggle up to me and say she loves me, I have to be okay with that too. Cause at least she had a warm place to sleep and, you know, several years of, of being okay, even though she was working through some really hard stuff and taking it out on us. And, and the other saving grace in that too, is that I, I had an amazing childhood. I, it was wonderful. And I didn't, you know, have to deal with some like the trauma and all of that, that, that this child had. And so I think that was kind of a foundation that God knew I I'll be okay. You know, I can handle this child's rocky foundation because I, I had a good one. And, um, so that's, that's where my faith is with God too, I guess. Like, what is your joy? What is your joy in this spot in your life that you're in now having probably still teasing out what did those eight or nine years mean? And God, please don't send anything (laughs) for my next decade. But I mean, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not crying and sad all the time. I mean, talking about this is painful, but I, I did some good grieving and, you know, I, we worked through a lot of that. And I, at this point in my life, I'm, it's a pandemic, so I'm not that joyful, but (laughs) I, I want to go and do and, and see things that for eight years, we, we really couldn't do and go and see. We, we recently started really skiing hard again, which my husband and I used to ski a lot. We used to live in Telluride. And so we skied all the time. And for the years when we had our third child, it, it it's a kind of isolating thing when you're parenting a kid who has a lot of needs, high needs. And, um, and we just didn't get out. We just, we really didn't do anything or go anywhere or, um, you know, we kind of put on hold some of the things that we wanted to do. And, and I feel like now we're getting a chance to kind of let's, let's be free a little bit again, because, you know, parenting itself is like, you're kind of locked in a little bit, you know, for 18 years or so. But, um, (laughs) especially with, with parenting, um, this, this child, um, most of my days were scheduled with have tos, you know, in parenting her like, okay, we have to go to therapy. Then we have to go to the meeting at the courthouse. And then we have to, you know, like really have to have tos, not just we have to go to soccer practice. It was a bigger deal. So, um, I feel kind of free right now to, to just, and that's been a process too. The last year the pandemic has made everyone more self-reflective, but <laughs> <laughs> like, what is it that I want to do? And who is it that I am right now? Cause our house suddenly became an empty nest in a really weird way. And, and that's a whole other identity crisis, you know, like becoming a mom is one thing. And then you're not a mom anymore is another thing. Um, and so, yeah, the last year I've been thinking a lot about that and, um, you know, just, I, I think I value, uh, friendships more. I, 
hold myself back a little bit with acquaintances because I feel like they're also my best friends and <laughs> I don't want to scare them. Um, <laughs> but um, that's a joy, you know, just being with people who don't have reactive attachment disorder. Amazing um, to connect to people. That's that's the meaning of life. You ask people what it is. It's connecting. Um, it's knowing and being known, right? So, so understanding that now in this chapter. If you could look at yourself 10 years ago and say something to her, to yourself, what would you say? Start dieting and exercising right now. <laughs> your metabolism <laughs> is oh, not... Yeah. Uh, no I don't think I think who I was at that time was just different and I my idea of how things are going to go and how powerful I am was really different and there's there's no way to change that there's no like Nicolas Cage cannot come back and warn me (laughs) (laughs) that it's going to get hard I I have said though um, off and on to people who casually mention they want to foster or they want to adopt i have said oh you know that's that's hard um i don't say too much unless they're really really asking me but i i think sometimes it bothers me that there's a an overly aggressive and simplistic culture in in christianity some places that says you know you ought to just take all those kids in and God will be there and you'll be fine. And I think probably probably a lot of families are. I don't know. I think our child's case has proven itself over and over to be severe. Um, and so I, I have to remind myself, like, not, not every situation turns out um, this way. Not every foster child has reactive attachment. Not, you know, every child endured what my minded and things. But, um, I do think that it's a bigger mess than, than you can explain to people. And I, so if there would have been any way to explain that to myself hmm. before I took this child, it just to have kind of a forewarning, like this is a big mess and it's not going to be about good parenting and good nutrition and (laughs) seatbelts. It's going to be something else. And yeah, I, it's a learning process along the way. So you can't really, you can't really be totally prepared, but I think you can have a better heads up. Um, so not having a heads up and nobody really having a heads up was, not helpful. You said something earlier about how this has made you more tolerant in just your approach to other people. Are there other things that as you look at the woman you are now, you go, I, I've, I've come to know this about myself or I've come to discover this. I really like that part about who I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm, 
yeah, I'm different. I, and my kids have told me this too. Like they recognize it. Like you're different. Um, I, I think I used to be more in my thinking. I was more black and white, right and wrong. Yes or no. I'm a very decisive person. So I, I kind of steal that from my decisiveness, but also now I, I'm not so sure about things and I'm okay with that. And I, if something isn't, um, doesn't match up, you know, with either what I believe or, or how the world is or who people are. Um, I just, I don't try to make it match up. I just, it's okay. And, um, there's all kinds of people is what I've really learned. And there's all kinds of reasons that there are those kinds of people. And, um, also even when there's not a reason, uh, I'm trying, this is my latest challenge. Sometimes things really don't have a reason. Like sometimes people are just mean and sometimes terrible things just happen and there's no really good reason. And at that point, let, let me see if I can, um, accept that person and love that person. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm at right now trying to figure out um, how to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, cause I mean, it sounds really easy. Everything Jesus says sounds really easy. Love one another. Okay. You have not met some of the people (laughs) (laughs) that I've met. So that's, that's where I'm challenging myself at this point, but yeah. I, I like that better. That's a better challenge than put people in good or bad categories and figure out the definitive answers on all of these questions. Because you just, I don't know, you just really can't. It's almost like something you grow out of if you experience something hard and unexplainable. So, So what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, sleeping and being in bed are my favorite things. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't uh, like to get out of bed in the morning, but um, I do like a nice cup of coffee and that'll be enough usually to think about to get up and have that. And what keeps you up at night? Uh, Not much. Uh, My husband snores like a chainsaw and... Uh, (laughs) sometimes that wakes me up but um I've never been a poor sleeper my mom was so concerned about that the whole time we had our third child she was so worried I wasn't getting my sleep and I was like no no we I that's one thing I yeah I actually don't want to wake up (laughs) yeah yeah I have more trouble on the other end yeah so well thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and and that it's just raw and it is what it is and so yeah there's not some bow on the end but it's still yours and it still matters and it's still beautiful and thank you for trusting us with it you're quite welcome
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Juniper and Journey podcast. If you heard something that resonated with you or that you have questions about, we would love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Juniper and Journey and slide into our DMs. It would be our treat and total privilege to chat with you. We all have a story. If you're interested in sharing yours here on the podcast, please reach out. Bye for now. Cheers. Cheers.